0: Father, it's only as we turn our eyes to you, to Jesus, that we can have any peace in this world. As our eyes are caught by the things that happen around us here, whether it's on the local stage, the national, the global even in the extended family. Lord, it's only through turning our eyes to You that we can have any peace at all. We thank You that You are there to catch our gaze, to give us the strength and the power to even look. And we give You the praise deserving of Your name. Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So before I begin the message, just uh, glad to be back. Uh, Our granddaughter is uh, married now. It was 52 degrees by the lake uh, during the service, outdoor uh, wedding. So uh, why can't there be a balance? 52 there, 103 here. Let's go for something in uh, the 70s. But anyway, we're happy to be back. Paulo Freire, he was a Brazilian philosopher and educator, and he wrote this, the oppressed tend to become oppressors instead of striving for liberation. That's a sad and unfortunate human dynamic that we are faced with simply... ...as being human beings. And we see it all through history to include the founding of our own nation. The Puritans were made outlaws by the Church of England. And they suffered horribly. In fact, the courage and the dedication that they showed is truly legendary. And it is legendary because all of you know the story whether you know the story or not, you know that they fled from England to Massachusetts Bay in 1620 on a rented ship called the Mayflower. And they did that in order to escape persecution. Freedom from persecution was finally in their grasp. Yet within a decade... They had become as oppressive toward anyone who dissented, in particular the Quakers, as they had ever been pursued or oppressed by the church in England. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's so, so sad. And this lack of religious tolerance came to its zenith about 40 years after they arrived in Boston on May the 31st in 1660. It was on that day they led a woman named Mary Dyer to the gallows and hung her. We're told somewhere near, on, near, whatever, no one knows for sure, the Boston Commons, the same Commons that Barb and I would walk around when I attended Boston University. So what was the horrendous crime that Mary had committed. Perhaps she murdered her husband. He was a wealthy man. Perhaps she robbed a bank. What horrific thing did she do? Well, I'll tell you what, it was nothing that we would consider a crime. What she did, she was hung for because she dared speak about the grace of God in the public squared. That's right. In general, the Puritans were powerfully uh, works-oriented. She didn't believe that. She didn't believe you needed to do anything in terms of works for salvation. She believed that salvation came through believing in Jesus Christ and Him alone. She also believed that the Holy Spirit was able to prompt you prompt you to say something, prompt you to do something. And she was executed because she believed and she taught those things. Whether you agree with her or not, that's why she was executed. But you know what? She actually understood the cost. She literally knew. It was just a few years earlier that she was doing the same thing. And so what they did was they lined her up with two others. So there were three of them. And one by one, uh, they hung them. So she's in a line. There they are. Number one, hang. Number two, hang. Number three, they put the noose around her neck. But because her husband had written letters on her behalf, literally begging for her life because he didn't know what was wrong with her, she wasn't herself, please spare her. And because he was a wealthy merchant, they did. But they banned her to Rhode Island for life. She didn't stay there. She came back in 1660. This time her husband's letters went disregarded. And in response to her, the demand for her to repent, she said this, nay, I cannot For in obedience to the will of the Lord God I came, and in His will I abide faithful to the death. The noose is right there. She's seen people hung for the same offense in front of her. She knows exactly what's going to happen. As it turns out, Mary was the next to the last person in the United States, to be executed by the state for theological disagreement. And her execution echoed through the state halls over the next century. So over a hundred years later, as the founders were wrestling with this notion of the Declaration of Independence and wrestling with this notion of the Constitution of the United States of America, she is... One of the proximate reasons, one of the core reasons, the First Amendment states: Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You know what? If you believe something, glory hallelujah, live it out. And it, this was a just a, a mess. One of the things that you... Why am I talking about Mary Dyer? Well, for a whole number of reasons. But one of them is this. You all know that I'm into genealogy. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, you do know now. So that you'll know that Barbara and I are eighth cousins on two separate lines. By the way, you're all related. It's just a matter of how do you prove the connections. So in this case, Mary Dyer is Barb's 14th cousin... Twelve times removed. (laughs) So, okay, that's distant, but you know what? It's it's verifiable. She's not a well-known figure, but she should be. Some 16 centuries before Mary's death, Jesus Christ spoke publicly about knowing God and about having been sent from God. fact, it was the early fall of what we know now as 32 AD, Uh, what we may not know is that within seven months of the message that we're speaking about today, the message that he gave in the temple, he would be cruelly crucified uh, by the Romans. So while we're only in chapter 7 and we think that's towards the beginning, it's actually towards the end of the time before he was crucified. So let's step back just a moment, run through, uh, just hit the wave tops in 7. The Feast of Tabernacles, that's one of the three annual feasts that the Jews had uh, in Jerusalem. So people came from all over the place. And when it says they went up, that's because Jerusalem's in the hills. You know, we think of up as north and down as south, and that's just the way we're oriented. But when you live in the mountains, you think as up as up and down is in the valley. So they would go, and they would celebrate God's provision for his people during the wilderness wanderings. So in verse 3, his brothers urged him to go up to Judea, specifically to Jerusalem, to show himself, right? And he said, no, I'm not going to go. And so they left. And so then what did he do? He turned around, and he went right behind them. And verse 14 tells us, that he went to the temple and he began to teach. Now, we need to feel something of the tension into which Jesus was speaking. He was not in any way in a friendly environment. He is preaching literally, from, certainly from a human perspective, with his life on the line. He knew that they were out to get him. So let's read in John uh, seven twenty five through 31. In fact, uh, this was uh, so p- uh, packed, I am not going through 36 today, but since I'm preaching next week, I can, you know, I can start and stop uh, sometimes at will. So we, we're going to 31 today. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, "'Is not this the man whom they seek to kill?' And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and, and no one will know where he comes from when the Christ appears. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him... You do not know. I know him. I come from him. He sent me. So they sought to arrest him, but no one touched him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So 25 and 26 tells us that the people were doubtful and confused about Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And there are reasons for that. Number one, uh, they knew him from Galilee, but they were really confused by the authorities' reaction. It just didn't make sense to them because it's clear. When you read the text, what you find out was that this plot, this notion, this plan to kill, uh, to find, uh, to arrest and to destroy, as we say in the military, to find, fix, and destroy. Jesus Christ was an open plan. They all knew it. They're talking about it in the street, and they can't figure it out. Because what they're saying is, if he's a threat, you lock him up. If he's the Messiah, you believe. And so, the people were saying, look, he's, he's out there, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. This was terribly confusing for them. It's like, I thought they were going to arrest and kill this guy, but he's in the temple, in the temple, openly preaching and uh, proclaiming and teaching. So, what are we supposed to believe? What were they supposed to believe? Those in charge of the temple said nothing. And so because of that inaction, the people were confused. And yet, it's wonderful to see that there is a little bit of hope peeking through all the skepticism. Could the rulers... They're asking this question. Could the rulers actually think that this person is the Christ? And while the expected response is, no, it's impossible not to see the hope penetrating through the darkness here. If this isn't the Christ, then who is he? Who is this person if not the Christ? And if it isn't the Christ, then why do they let him speak? Now, regrettably, the hope that they had was had been poisoned. Not deliberately, but it's just what they were taught. So they were taught that the Messiah was not from Galilee. The Messiah was not going to be a carpenter. The Messiah was going to be a conquering a hero. No one would know anything out his, about his past because they attached that to Malachi 3 where he would just suddenly appear in the temple. No one would know his background. No one would know anything about him. So this can't be the Messiah. Why? We know this guy's a carpenter from Galilee. And so it can't be the Messiah. The Messiah has no history. Now, the reader of John immediately recognizes the irony. We know that Jesus is more than a Galilean. He is the Logos. He is the virgin-born son of God from Bethlehem. But that's for us. That's the literary irony that's present in the book. At that time, in real time, they reasoned, we, we know where this man is from. So he can't be the Messiah. Who is he? Why do the authorities let him continue to preach? So they understood that there was something about him that was special, but they couldn't conclude that he was the Messiah. Not just yet, so they were confused. Verses 28 and 29 tell us that Jesus at this point, he did not step back. We do not, we say it, and I'm not saying we give lip service to it. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that we often don't generate in our minds the kind of courage that it took for him to stand there under the threat of death and teach. Just, he was an amazing amazing uh, person uh, that of course we admire so much knowing him as the Christ but just as a human being, tremendous courage he didn't let the dust settle. he spoke to and he addressed the people he cried out in the temple I love this word it doesn't mean doesn't have the same kind of connotations. Uh, for us in uh, in English, but let me explain it a little bit. The word is Carazzo. Uh, so, in the army, when I was in the army, I was at least for two years uh, our unit's mountaineering instructor. So, I went through all the training in order to fulfill that role in a place called Black Rapids, and I spent time there learning how to navigate uh, mountains and especially uh, glaciers, Alaska, right, safely. And so on one occasion, we pitched our tent on the glacial field and we would be up there uh, for a week. And uh, one of the things that, y- you know, it's one of those things you can't know unless you, unless you know or unless somebody uh, tells you. But who knew, every morning around 4 a.m. or so, the, the ravens would come and <laughs> make a racket. I mean, incredibly loud, impossible to sleep through. You just get up. That's what you do. That such a large sound could come from such a bird was, was really uh, striking. And uh, you couldn't hear anything else. That's the word here. I mean, literally, that's the word here. The cry of the raven. In other words, it sounds strange to us. That doesn't sound complimentary. So let me explain to you what that meant. What it means is that to the Jews, his voice was strong. It was authoritative. It was unmistakable. It was unavoidable. He was declaring. He was affirming. And so for them, what it meant, it means something different for us. For us, it's irritating. But that's not what it meant for them. What it meant for them is that it was... Powerful. There's a second word we find here, and that's the word Didasco, which means uh, I teach, or it means teaching. Uh, these two words are very significant because Jesus wasn't simply teaching in the temple. Teaching means interpreting, in, uh, instructing, explaining, and he was teaching about the kingdom of God he have been interpreting the Old Testament and explaining its meaning. And that's where preaching uh, starts. But preaching doesn't uh, end with teaching. It moves on to Carazzo. It moves on to not simply uh, opening it up and explaining it, but to proclaim it with authority. Thus says the Word of God. And so we find it has to do with Jesus' delivery. He's proclaiming the Word of God. He's teaching the Word of God. So this is one of the critical differences between what is done in the pulpit on Sunday and what happens in Sunday school or on Wednesday night, where that's primarily teaching and instructing. And on Sunday, there is a proclamation piece That's not always evident in teaching. And then after that, what Jesus did was he rebuked them. Because they're saying, you know, we know you. We know where you're from. We won't know where Messiah is from. So he said, you both know me and where I come from. Now, for us, that doesn't sound like a rebuke. It sounds like you know who I am. Come on, guys. You know who I am, you know where I'm from. That's not what Jesus is doing. It's not clear in the English, it's very clear in the original. What Jesus is saying is, you know something intellectual. You think you know me. You suppose I am an uneducated carpenter from Galilee. Do you think you know who I am and where I'm from? So he, he offers this clarification. He cuts to the bottom line. Essentially, what he's saying is, you don't know me at all. You have no knowledge of me. Why? Because you do not know the one who sent me. You don't know God. Because if you knew God, you would hear my words and everything would fall into place. But because everything is confusing and doubtful and difficult, the problem is not what I'm saying. Its problem is your relationship with God. And I think that's our message for today. I'm not talking about just in here. I'm talking about across the way. Because we tend to try to solve problems before we bring them to Christ. When we should be crying out, to God to give us wisdom and insight and knowledge and understanding. And once we know this from God, then things here fall in place. We should be asking, God, what are you doing here? I mean, even in your own lives, God, what are you doing here? How can I join in with what you're already doing? I mean, our inherent problem Uh, broadly speaking, as a race, is, is that we don't know God. If we knew God, things would fall into place. But instead we think, no, our problems are because of the economy. Our problems are because of those belligerent nations that are out there. Our problems are because we have lousy politicians. Or Corona, or whatever all else. You know, it's... The gradual reduction of our freedoms. That's the problem. It's not the problem. It is not the problem. Christians thrived in Babylon. They did. Up until the last decade. Christians thrived in Rome. We can thrive. Our real problem is that we don't have a relationship with God. We could rest in his sovereignty if we knew him. Even amid a hostile crowd that Jesus was proclaiming the truth to. And so in 29, Jesus, I mean, he goes all out here. I just love it. Before I actually began to study and understand the new testament i would be told by people people with credibility that jesus never claimed to be the messiah we read that into the text that's so much baloney (laughs) it is so not true listen to this confession that Jesus makes. It's one of the loftiest claims that he actually ever made. Right in the middle of the section in verse 29. Jesus said, I know him. I am from him. He sent me. He sent me. That word sent. I could spend a lot of time on that. But the, the bottom line with that word sent. Is it's not just he sent me. Like go out and play. You, you know. It's, there is a mission attached to it. That's as personal as you can get. That's a personal relationship with God. Jesus was intimate. He was close. He lived in communion with God. And so with this same literary irony that I mentioned before, we see how John 1, if you were at the worship service this morning, you heard this as it began to open up for us. We see how John 1 came to be. We've known this since the beginning of the book. They didn't know this, but they're seeing it played out in real time. Jesus is saying, I am here because the Father sent me. And we know that the mission was to save sinners. So the only one who truly knows God the Father is God the Son. And uh, we know a little bit about him. And we do. But Jesus knows the fullness of his glory. The only way that we can know anything about God is through Jesus Christ. It's through the Son. It is the Son who makes God known to us. The Son also takes us to the Father. He brings us in close relationship and fellowship with him. Later, uh, we'll come to this text... Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by or through me. To know God, we have to know the Son. So in verse 30, while the rebuke that Jesus gave is hard for us to see in English, all you got to look for, and you see this, we heard this this morning too in John eight fifty eight. If you think that oh I don't know exactly what this text means look at the reaction look at what it caused people to do in John 8:58 what happened immediately after that they picked up stones to stone him and Jesus is going what are you doing that for <laughs> we'll get to 8:58 shortly but they sought to seize him they wanted to seize him they were so angry they likely just simply wanted to haul him out and stone him right there on the spot. They attempted to do so. But the Father had ordered a time and a place for his crucifixion. And until then, all things would work in concert toward that goal. In other words, they couldn't lay a hand on him because it wasn't... His time. Even though they were seeking, planning, plotting, and they had the muscle to do it, to take him, lay hold of him, and put him to death. You know, a lot of people today live in the fear of death. And I, I swear that's what the media's main purpose is. <laughs> You know, if global warming is not going to kill you, then nuclear war will. You know, if COVID doesn't kill you, right, it's as yet unnamed or unknown cousin will. Uh, It's like every time you turn on the news, the world is falling apart, generating fear, whatever that fear source of it may come from. I want to, for those of you who that may touch something inside of you, I want to remind you of something. It's, it's something that I, oh, I think I was in my mid-30s before I finally was able to get it even, even just a little bit. And that is this, Revelation one eighteen. Jesus as he's in the temple and as he's proclaiming and as he's teaching and he knows these men are wanting to and they're probably, they're moving likely toward him. We don't know how he escaped. We're not told. But we do know that no one touched him. What we know is that they were coming to take his life. That same Jesus in Revelation 1.18 says this, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death. Listen to me carefully. Satan does not have the keys to death. Satan cannot take your life outside of the express will of the Father. Jesus Christ is the one who stood in the face of death and taught and proclaimed. He is also the one that tells you your hour is not yet come. Now, it is true that our death may be tragic. We have all witnessed tragic death. In fact, all death is tragic. But like Mary Dyer, her tragic death was not outside of God's eternal loving plan, and yours and mine will not be either. These are things that we do not understand deeply, but we must trust in Him for. Finally, verse 31 tells us the response. This is always remarkable. To me, as you look at the response, it says that many in the crowd believed in him. So logically they thought, okay, his miraculous power sets him apart. But something about him has now caused us to believe. And, and I'm reminded of the sun in this case, right? There used to be a song, Twyla Paris, I think. Uh, saying it but it was about how the the sun hardens clay you know and yet it softens other things so you always see this you see this divide you see those who believe and those who don't believe you see those who want to come closer and you see those who want to move away in the amid the conflict and the confusion, and the adversity, men and women came to faith in Jesus Christ. And during this time, this present hour, we find ourselves in this global panic that I was mentioning uh, earlier. And because of that, many will come to Christ, and many will pull away. A lot, of people here believed. Jesus went to the temple to teach and to cry out because he knew that some of his sheep were there. Now, I uh, always wonder when I preach, whether it's online or in person, uh, I'm not so naive as to believe that everyone in the sound of my voice knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. Even if they know his name, even if maybe they could teach a lesson on about who he was, do they know him? And we should have hope that every time the word of God moves forth, every time the word of God is proclaimed, that the Spirit of God as Mary Dyer understood it, would move and touch someone's heart that they might believe, that their ears might be opened, that God's grace might penetrate their life and put their faith and trust in Him. And this is what must happen for each one of us. Gradually, many people began to consider Mary's death to be a martyr's death. It's an amazing thing. You can read it in the history books. The man who put the noose around Mary's neck and hung her, he was a hangman, that's what he did, upon hearing her confession and witnessing her death, quit his job that day and became a Quaker like she was. King Charles II of England was so fed up with this, he said, stop this nonsense that you're doing. Even they had learned some lessons based on what had happened. and Well, I'm being too generous, I think. Scotland and some other places were a real mess. But it began a process that moved towards tolerance. And ultimately, the freedom... I want you to think about this. We owe our freedom... In Christ to Jesus Christ. But we owe our freedom of expression of our religion in large part to this woman that many of you never even heard of till today. Her courage, her willingness to give her life came from Jesus Christ. And from the time of Jesus speaking in the temple, In just a few months would come the fullness of time when he would be handed over to sinful men to be crucified for you and for me. I beg of you this morning not to let the weight of that pass you by. Come to him today. Father, we, the more we come to know your Son, the lovelier he becomes to us. The courage, just the raw physical courage, the moral courage. The spiritual courage that he exhibited throughout his life and we only have these pictures to look at glimpses but it causes us to stand in awe he gave his life that we might live may we this day turn our lives to him either for the first time Lord, are in a continuing relationship that your glory might be made known to pick up this morning's theme that our light, the light that he gives us, might shine from the hills. We thank you, we praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.